Well, I want to welcome all of you guys. I want to welcome those of you with us uh, from West Falls Church and also those tuning in online. We are so glad that you guys are here today. And um, I'm so excited, you guys. Uh, ever since we uh, started this series, we've been planning this series, Unlikely Heroes, we're looking at all these different heroes in the Bible. This is the message that uh, I've been looking forward to the most because today is the unlikeliest hero of them all, and it is none other than the infamous Judas Iscariot, the disciple, one of the 12, one of Jesus' inner circle, who betrayed Jesus and was the reason that Jesus was arrested and crucified. And so you may be here this morning going, wait, 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 wait. It's called unlikely heroes? Like, how in the world is Judas Iscariot possibly a hero? How could this guy be a hero? How did he make this series? Well, that's a great question, and we're going to get to that question. But before we talk about how Judas was a hero, I got another question. Why did Judas betray Jesus? Like, what compelled Judas to do that? Because if you think about it for a minute, it's pretty extraordinary. So Judas was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was on the inner circle, and for three years— He did everything with Jesus, traveled around with Jesus, experienced all of life with Jesus. And so just just think about this for a minute, okay? If you've read any of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in the Bible, of all the things that Jesus said and did, this is incredible because Judas Iscariot had a firsthand experience with all of this stuff. So, you know, Jesus would go and he would teach And people were so drawn to him and the way that he taught that just crowds and crowds of people would be jaw-dropped at his teaching. And it wasn't just the content. It wasn't just the parables. It wasn't just kind of the way that he was teaching. But it actually says in the Gospels that people were in awe because he taught with such authority. It, was, it wasn't just the content. It was, it was just the, like his whole presentation. It was otherworldly. It was as if this wasn't just some mere man, some rabbi. There was something supernatural about the teachings. Judas was right there to experience all those, to hear those, to sit firsthand. Think of all the the healings that Jesus performed. He helped the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the mute to be able to speak. Shoot, he even raised Lazarus from the dead. And Judas Iscariot was right there. He saw all of this with his own eyes. And then you got the miracles of Jesus. So Jesus has got a crowd of people he's teaching. They get hungry. And he takes a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish. And he multiplies them. And 5,000 men alone, let alone women and children, are fed Incredible. You got Jesus walking out on water to the 12 disciples in a boat. And you've got Jesus who, in the middle of a storm, when we're all on the, they're all on the boat together, Jesus just merely speaking to the storm calms the wind and calms the waves. And think about this Judas Iscariot had a front row seat, he saw all of that with his own eyes, he, he heard all of that with his own eyes. So what in the world would compel Judas, a follower of Jesus, a disciple, a friend, to betray Jesus? Well, to answer that question, 
we need to take a look at who this guy really was. So the first thing that we can do is take a look at his name. You'd know a lot uh, by somebody's name. It's very significant. So Judas Iscariot, first of all, his name Judas. Uh, Judas was a very common Jewish name. In fact, it's so common that you see the name Judas, all different people in the Bible. And uh, it's so common that, that there's actually two of the 12 disciples were both named Judas. So you had Judas, the son of James, and you have Judas, the son of Simon. So the son of Simon is actually Judas Iscariot. Well, the word Judas uh, literally meant God leads. So you can imagine Judas's parents decided, you know, we want our little boy to grow up and, you know, to, to follow God and to be led by God. And so they pick out this name Judas. And certainly that is how his story starts. Now, uh, we mentioned earlier in this series that, that the last name that you would get would usually be derived from like who your father was or a brother was, again, very uh, patriarchal society, or who your husband was. Um, and so it would be typical that, that um, Judas would be the son of Simon. But um, he's not called the son of Simon, interestingly. He is called Judas Iscariot. And this is a very important detail that the writers of those gospel accounts wanted to make sure that their original readers would understand. And that is that um, rather than calling him son of Simon, if he's known as Judas Iscariot, Iscariot means from Kerioth. So Iscariot from Kerioth. And so Kerioth is a, a little, tiny little rural um, farming town, 23 miles south of Jerusalem. And what's significant about this detail that the gospel writers would have wanted us to know is that um, Kerioth is in Judea. And as some of you know, all the other disciples were from Galilee. So the other 11 from Galilee, and here is Judas Iscariot from Judea. And so what that meant was, he was kind of an outsider from the very beginning. You know, back then, 2,000 years ago, people didn't travel. I mean, families were from where they were from, and they went back generations. And so even if the 11 other disciples didn't all know each other, you know, hadn't all, you know, grown up together or whatever, they would know generally about each other's families, and there was kind of just an understanding because they all grew up in Galilee. And here you have this guy, Judas Iscariot from Kerioth, and they didn't really know who he was. He's, he was an outsider right from the get-go. Now, not that he was the only outsider in the group, because, I mean, after all, you've got Matthew, the tax collector. I mean, definitely an outsider. He was collecting taxes for the Romans, the, the Romans who were oppressing the Jews. And so he was seen as a traitor to his people, not respected at all by, um, by his fellow brothers and sisters there. And then you also had, on the other end of the spectrum, you had another disciple named uh, Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots were kind of a a terrorist group. There's not really a better way to say it. Um, but essentially what they wanted was they wanted nothing but emancipation from Rome at any cost. And so they would literally, they would, they would kill people. They would kill Romans. They were just trying to spark a revolution. They were trying to get this uprising going. But the problem with that was that these, these extremists like Simon, they would cause all sorts of trouble because there'd be this little outbreak, there'd be some violence. And then guess what the Romans decided to do? then it would just be even more heavy-handed on the nation of Israel. So Judas wasn't the only outsider in the mix, but he was a bit of an outsider nonetheless. But one of the things that all these 12 disciples had in common is that they 
were expecting a Messiah. And this wasn't just something that would have been unique to Judas or even the 12 disciples. This was all of Israel. There was this Messiah who was predicted to come and there were these different prophets that had talked about there was going to be a Messiah who was going to save the people of Israel. But it wasn't the Messiah like we kind of think of today in a Christian context. Someone who would come and, and you know, make a sacrifice and, and save us from our sins and, and kind of redeem us and put us in a right standing with God. The, the understanding of a Messiah back then was simply, hey, this Roman Empire that is just oppressing us, this Messiah is going to rise up similar to King David, who we talked about last week. It's going to be a monarch. They're going to be a military, a political leader. And once again, we're going to see the nation of Israel restored. And so all of these disciples, including Judas, that's what they were looking for. They were expecting a Messiah. But they weren't just expecting. They weren't just kind of cheering from the sidelines. These were young, motivated, ambitious men. And they were so into this thing that they were willing to actually, when they saw Jesus, who very much fit the profile of this Messiah, very influential, charismatic, incredible teacher, seemed to have this supernatural gift and power, they said, this looks like the Messiah. We're all in. These were guys who wanted to be a part of it, who were willing to put skin in the game. And certainly Judas was there too. And he was certainly ambitious. And we know in one area in particular, Judas was very ambitious, and that was in the area of money. We read a couple different places, including John 13, 29, that Judas was in charge of the money. So Judas was the treasurer. Judas, Judas was the accountant of the group. And you may be thinking, well, why did they need a treasurer? Like, this is just Jesus and a few of his disciples going around. Listen, listen. So Jesus was traveling with the 12, but then they also had those who were the most marginalized of society who were traveling around with them. So they had the sick, they had the poor, who certainly they were trying to feed and support. They had supporters who were, were funding the ministry because after all, everyone's got to eat. You know, they got to eat, they got to sleep, they got to do all those things. And so Judas became the treasurer. He was in charge of the money. And that's actually where we find the first signs of a problem with Judas. We pick it up in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. This is uh, the gospel written by another disciple named John. And it goes like this Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived. That's the Lazarus that uh, Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. And I think this is nice, you know? I mean, after all, if Jesus goes to the trouble of raising you from the dead, I hope you could at least buy him dinner. So they're having this dinner for Jesus, and a couple of Lazarus's sisters are there. Martha, she served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with Jesus. And then Mary, and this is Mary of Bethany, if you were with us for the Mary Magdalene sermon, we talked about the confusion between those two Marys, uh, but this is Mary of Bethany. It says that she took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Some of you are going, oh, that sounds amazing. Others of you are like, oh, oh. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. 
Notice he's already running the numbers. He's already figuring out how much money that's worth. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, check this out, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So we see Judas dipping his hand into the money bag, taking some for himself. And really what we see here is a guy who is not focused on what Jesus is focused on. You see, Jesus, these guys are actually, they're traveling to Beth, to, to, um, to Bethany, and Bethany's pretty close to Jerusalem. So they're heading to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And Jesus has been telling his disciples, guys, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I am actually going to lay down my life. This Messiah that you're looking for, I'm a whole different kind of Messiah. I'm laying down my life as a sacrifice for all the sins of the world. And so the, the disciples are trying to wrap their heads around this whole idea. But that's where Jesus is saying, this perfume was to prepare him for his day of burial. So this is a moment where they're focused on Jesus and focused on his sacrifice. And where is Judas's focus? He's focused on that money because he knows if a year's worth of wages coming into his possession, he could have taken a nice big cut off the top of that. And so here is Judas under this guise of, you know, caring about the poor and how that money could have been spent. But really, he's focused on that money and on himself. So they continue on through Bethany into Jerusalem. And um, this, is where, this is where everybody's gunning for Jesus. There have already been threats on his life. And this is where Judas makes his move. Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16. It says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. Now, what I want you to notice about this little piece of text here is Judas is absolutely the initiator of this whole thing. Did you notice that? He goes to the chief priests. He's the one that poses the question. He starts the negotiations. And then it says that he watches for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. So what I want you to notice about this is this isn't like in some sort of a moment of emotion, somebody approaches Judas and he just kind of in a weak moment goes, oh yeah, I mean, gets some offer he can't refuse. And he turns, he says, yeah, yeah, I'll turn Jesus over to you. Judas seeks these guys out. He initiates the conversation and then he watches for the right time to make this betrayal. So the point here is that this betrayal This is premeditated, it's calculated, it's planned. It's not a spur of the moment, spontaneous decision. So why in the world did Judas do this? What compelled him to do this? I mean, he was into money, he was really greedy. But you know, 30 silver coins... That's not even, that's basically a month's wages. Now, that's a decent chunk of change, but that's not going to get him his retirement home on the Sea of Galilee. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's, it's, it's a little bit of money, but is that really worth 
betraying Jesus who you've been following for the last three years? It just, it just couldn't be the money, could it? It's, there's just not enough of it for that to be the only driver. And so, you know, maybe if we think a little bit more and we think about he wanted, you know, just like everybody wanted this Messiah to come who would, you know, help Israel to rise up and overthrow the Roman Empire. Maybe, maybe, if we speculate a little bit, maybe Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand. Maybe he was trying to put Jesus up against the authorities. He thought, you know what, if I put him toe-to-toe against, you know, the, the, the religious establishment in Jerusalem and toe-to-toe up against the Romans, then, you know, all those miracles that I've been seeing and, and just all this crazy authority and all the influence and just ability to rally people, I mean, maybe that'll force Jesus into action. Maybe we can have a huge confrontation and maybe this will be the spark that will lead to, you know, the redemption of Israel. Maybe he was trying to, you know, he's tired of Jesus just kind of waffling around and not really doing anything and doing these teachings here and there and performing miracles. Let's go toe-to-toe with the Romans. Maybe that's what he was doing. Maybe. But there is absolutely no evidence of that in any of those gospel accounts in the Bible. And so ultimately, the, the answer to the question, why? Why did Judas do this? can only be answered with, you know, we really don't know. I mean, clearly he was driven by money, but this is really not that much. So we don't really know. But one thing we do know is that ultimately, this is not the story of Judas Iscariot. This is the story of Jesus Christ. It's his story. So, As we just read, Judas had been watching. He'd been planning. He'd been calculating. He's watching for the right opportunity to turn Jesus over to the authorities. And the big deal here is that wherever Jesus went, he had crowds with him. He was so loved by the people, particularly those who were on the margins of society. And so he had a massive following. And so the, the, the chief priests and, and the elders, they couldn't just walk up when he's in the middle of a crowd because there'd be a full-on riot. I mean, it'd be terrible politically for them. So they're, they're trying to find an opportunity where they can get Jesus alone, where they can make this arrest quietly. Because otherwise, there could be terrible ramifications. So one night during Passover week, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's all alone with just his 12 disciples. He's away from all the crowds. It's late in the evening after dark. It's the perfect opportunity. And so Judas decides this is the time. I'm going to make my move. So we pick it up in Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 49. This is pretty cool. Matthew, the tax collector, this is his account. He was there in the garden. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the irony of this moment should not be lost on any of us. Because you see, back then and still today in some cultures, 
that kiss that you would give on the cheek, that signified love. It signified respect. It signified friendship and loyalty. And with that kiss, that is how Judas chose to betray his friend, Jesus. Verse 50 says, Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. Jesus, of course, didn't resist this at all. Um, This was part of the plan. This was part of what he knew was going to happen, and um, he went willingly. Then in verse 56, after Jesus had been arrested, it says, then all the disciples deserted and fled. At that point, it's over. We're done. Ball game. Jesus was much more than some sort of a a list of teachings or moral things that you had to do. In fact, Jesus just said, no, it's very simple. Just have faith in me. I am God. Well, God can't get arrested and crucified. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't work. So at this point, the movement is over. Skipping ahead to Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5, it says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. And at this point, you go, man, that's really interesting. He, he returned the money. I mean, he was filled with remorse. And so at this point, like if you want to give Judas Iscariot every benefit of the doubt that he's not the villain, that it wasn't as bad as this premeditated, calculated thing, if you want to give him every benefit of the doubt, you go, well, he, he did give back the money. So maybe it really wasn't about the money. Maybe it really was that he was trying to spark this revolution, you know? He was just trying to thrust Jesus forward to make this thing happen because he got impatient. And then when he saw that Jesus was condemned, he realized, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe he had good intentions after all, just in a really messed up way that he executed. There's just one just tiny little problem with that line of thinking. And that's something that Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 12. He's praying for his disciples. And as he's praying for them, he says, none, none of the 12, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. And if you go back and you look at um, the original language there, it's none has been lost except the son of perdition. The son of perdition is only used one other time in the Bible and it describes the Antichrist, which is not the kind of company you want to have being called that, you know? Um, and, and so this, this word perdition, it, it means utter destruction. It refers to someone who's in an unredeemable state, a son of perdition. So that's where in the NIV translation, it's translated the one doomed to destruction. So according to Jesus, Judas is someone who's utterly lost. 
There's no good intentions there at all. He's beyond redemption. And so ultimately, Judas just overcome with the evil that's within him and that he's committed. He hangs himself. And because of that, Jesus hangs on a cross. So, coming back to that question that was maybe in your mind in the very beginning. So how in the world is Judas Iscariot a hero? How does he make a series that's talking about the unlikely heroes of the Bible? Well, clearly he's the unlikeliest of heroes. But what is heroic is actually nothing in Judas. What is heroic is what God does through Judas or maybe even more appropriately, what God does in spite of Judas Iscariot. Because think about it. Here's a guy who's on the inner circle. This is the worst kind of betrayal that you can possibly have. And this betrayal of Jesus leads to Jesus being beaten, mocked, spit upon, flogged, which many people didn't even survive a flogging, then stripped of his clothes, hung on a cross, completely humiliated. And here, just picture this. Think about this for a minute. Here is Jesus Christ, the the one who claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the light of the world, hanging on a cross, You ima- just imagine, imagine the devil, okay? Imagine all the forces of evil beholding this scene. The son of God, all the goodness and love in him, this light of the world, crucified, struggling to take breath after breath as he asphyxiates on that cross. You can imagine all of those evil forces just, just, celebrating, just delighting. We've got the victory over good. This is evil's finest hour. And evil's finest hour turns out to be God's finest accomplishment. Here is Jesus, who in that moment takes on all the sin, all the evil, in the world, upon himself. And as he dies, all of that dies with him. He swallows all that up and then is raised to life so that through faith in him, we would be free from sin as well. And so the devil's finest hour is actually God's greatest achievement. And what this shows us, really, if God can redeem this moment, the absolute worst of the worst, when evil has won the day, if God can redeem that moment, Jesus on a cross, there is no moment that Jesus can't redeem. There's nothing that God can't redeem. There's nothing that God can't use for good. Because there's nothing more vile, nothing more evil than that moment right there. In fact, there's a verse that many of you are probably familiar with. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, written by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 28. 
He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. I love this verse, particularly those words, in all things, God works for the good. In all things, God works for the good. And you know, we've all experienced this verse in one way or another, haven't we? We've all had times where something has happened to us and it has not been good. It has not been fun. We've experienced adversity. We've experienced challenge. We've had a hard time. And it hasn't, there's been nothing good about it in the moment. But then with a little time, we realize, wow, you know, I didn't see it at the time, but, but things have turned out better. There was good that came out of that. You know, I didn't understand why that door closed, but, but now I do. Or maybe it was, you know, I just, I'm, I'm so much better for that because, you know, I'm, I'm tougher, I'm stronger. I, I've got this experience now with this thing and it's, it's helped me in my life. I know for me, um, man, I had a couple of, uh, of moves when I was a kid and, and man, for me, I had uh, times in middle school and high school that were just really hard, you know, like just really challenging. And I, and I felt like the outsider, I felt like the outcast. And um, man, there was nothing great about that at the time, but, but now today, I feel like it's helped me so much to understand people who are hurting, who are going through difficult times. Uh, my parents went through a divorce and that really was, was hard. But, um, you know, I, 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 I now I think I'm better able to empathize in, in many ways with, with folks that are going through similar things like that. So, you know, we've all experienced this, right? Where, where something happened and it, it was bad, but, but it actually worked out and we saw the good in it. We saw how it made us better. But then there are many of us who've experienced pain and suffering and just downright evil, there's no other way to say it, that is just almost unbelievable. It's almost unspeakable. And if you've gone through something like that, something just horrific, and then someone comes to you and they just like, if, if you actually like have the trust and, you know, whatever to, to share that with them, if, if you did, you shared with them something that was so painful, so deep, so dark, and they came at you, the next thing they said was, well, you know, I just, can I just share with you a Bible verse? Can I just, can I just share with you Romans eight twenty eight? You would want to slap them right across the face. How dare you say, in the midst of my pain, how dare you say that? that God's working it for good right now. How dare you? you? You do not have the authority to say that. How dare you? You have not walked this road. You don't know. And what I want to tell you is that you're right. You're right. My wife, Becky, um, has a younger brother named Robbie. And uh, man, he's, he's so great. He makes me laugh so much. Um, just, a, just a great kid. Um, not a kid, he's an adult, but um, I've known him as long as I've uh, known my wife, so 20 plus years now, and um, he has uh, a form of autism called Asperger's syndrome, and um, you guys, it's such a struggle. It is such a struggle for him, and um, 
his life is really hard, you know? He, he understands, like, the hardest part is that he, he knows, like, how his brain should work. It's very high functioning, you know? And then it doesn't work that way, and it really depresses him. And, and I don't want to get into all the struggle, but, but if I could just say this, um, I can't tell you how many prayers that we have prayed for Robbie throughout our lives. And I'm not just talking about like, oh God, you know, please be with Robbie. I'm talking about like the pillow is wet when you're done, you know? You've just gotten off the phone and you, you've heard the struggle and you pray and you pray and you pray. And I'd love to tell you that God has done some sort of a miraculous thing. I mean, certainly we've seen God's hand in small ways, but Robbie still struggles to this day right now. He does. But for all the prayers that we've prayed, and I can't tell you how many, I also can't tell you how much Robbie has shaped my wife. She is an unbelievable person. Her amount of compassion and her empathy um, just stagger me. You ever have someone in your life and you just compare to them, you feel like such a selfish, worthless person, you know, that's, that's how, you know, that's, I mean, she's just so amazing. And in fact, her, I mean, that's why she's a, she's a pediatric nurse because that's what she's felt called to give her life to, to helping those who are hurting. And Robbie's influence goes beyond just, you know, my wife, but also to his, one of his other sisters who uh, is working in Pennsylvania, one of the most, uh, as a, as a doctor in one of the most under-resourced um, communities in, in Pennsylvania. And, and on and on it goes. I mean, there's so much good that um, has come out of this. But here's the thing, and you're maybe already thinking this. Yeah, that's great. But does it really make up for Robbie's struggle? Is like, so that's just like, he just has to bear this and other people get to benefit. It still doesn't seem like the good outweighs the bad, that it makes up for the pain and the struggle. And I got to tell you, if that's kind of where your brain goes, I'm with you. And I don't really have an answer to struggles like these. Because I, I just believe that there's certain things that we don't get answers to this side of heaven. I, man, it frustrates the life out of me. I wish we did. But, um, but we don't always. And I don't have the answer for that one. But... In faith, in hope, I cling to this verse. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Even when it doesn't make sense, in faith, in hope, we continue to believe but somehow, some way, God is working. And I got to tell you this morning, if you're here and you're, maybe you've just come through something or you're in the midst of tremendous suffering and pain, I just want to say, I am so sorry for what you're going through. And you may say, Derek, you'd never understand. You'd never get it. You've never experienced something like that. And I would tell you, yeah, you're right. 
I wouldn't get it. I'm not going to fully understand. But you know what? There's one who does. There's one who does. There's one who understands suffering because he suffered. He understands betrayal because he was betrayed. He understands pain because he's lived this life. And he knows your suffering. He knows your pain fully. Maybe even better than you know it yourself. And I don't know the answer to how God works it all for our good. But I do know one thing for sure. That God walks with us through it. And God knows. And God loves us. So I just want to take a moment right now. And um, I want to pray for you guys. So if you would, just bow your heads. God, we thank you for the unlikeliest of heroes, God, who wasn't really a hero at all, but you are our hero, God. We thank you for how you took the most horrific moment and you made it a moment for our redemption. God, you know the suffering and the pain that is here right now. God, please, please, as only you can, please bring healing, bring relief, bring hope. And God, in the way that only you can, we just pray you'd be working in the midst of it to bring about, God, your perfect will. In Christ's name we pray, amen.